the intersection of true crime and real estate, you'll find Crime Estate. I'm Heather. And my name is Elena. As real estate agents and true crime junkies, we view crimes through a different lens. So walk through the door of some of the most notorious true crimes with us and discover how sometimes the scene of the crime has its own story to tell. Hey, ladies, we are back with another Crime Estate podcast. Hey, Heather. Hey, Melanie. Hello. Good to see you guys. You know, I think we've mentioned that we record a few weeks ahead. And so um, we were, Elena and I were actually chaperoning a school mm-hmm. field trip last week, so we didn't get to record. So it's always nice to be back in studio with you guys. Yeah, yeah. totally. It was fun. We had a good time. We posted on the social media about the ghost tour that we took. That was really fun. It really was. Yes. But, and the boys were trying to scare. Actually, mine boy was not. Your boy was trying to scare <laughs> me really bad. My son thought it would be hilarious <laughs> to scare you on the ghost tour. Yes. He was super cute. It was well, fun. Yeah. Well, he also knows that you uh, don't like ghosts. He's so. a loyal listener. Yeah, <laughs> he is. Okay. Wait, but did you bring your holy water on the ghost tour? I ended up not. Okay. Yeah. I asked my mom and she forgot to bring it to me. So oh. if but I'm, you're still feeling good about it, yeah. you don't feel like you came home yeah. with any attachments. I or partly helped that I could not hear her very well. So, and I was like in the back of the group, I purposely could not hear her very well. So that definitely helped. Okay, good. The part that creeped me out though was the um, cemetery. That, that's just creepy without the ghost tour, just being in the cemetery to me. At night. At yeah. night. Yes. I'm yeah. picturing, I think I know exactly what cemetery you're, you're talking to about. So, yeah. Uh, our resident DC expert well, was not on the trip, but we kept texting her like, hey, uh, yes. this is where we're at. Well, yeah, because y'all were in Old Town, which was like my stomping grounds. Oh. And so that was where we lived um, when we were pregnant with Cole. And so, yeah, we lived in this cool kind of townhome that was dated back pretty far. And uh, we used to walk up and down King Street all the time. We had our favorite little pubs and we would go down to the Potomac River. Yeah, we, I, we stayed in one of those um, little bed and breakfasty kind of hotels on King Street this summer for a few of the nights we were there. Mm, so, hopefully not the Haunted Hotel. You know, I, I, I will have to have you pointed it out on a map, probably, because the one we stayed in, you know, dated back to the 1700s. Ooh, I would just assume everything out there is haunted because it's yeah. so old. and Yeah, it, I think that's a fair assumption. Yeah, every, just everything. But would, nothing haunted in today's story, right? We have moved past. Oh, well, no. Okay. I mean, nothing, nothing documented, but I don't know. You know, um, we're very far from DC. We're closer to home today. We're going to be in Rowlett, Texas. So very oh, close to that's home. That's real close. Very close. Um, actually, 10 minutes from where I grew up in Mesquite. So um, I remember hearing about all this when it happened. And it's also in a decade that's near and dear to all of us, the 90s. Oh, so yeah. this is really a hometown story. Yeah. You know how there's like some podcasts where they have people write in about like, what is their hometown story? Mm-hmm. This is yours. Yeah, basically. Yeah. yeah. About 10 minutes from where I grew up in 1996. So that was the, it happened in the summer, June 96, the summer before my senior year of high school. So what were you doing? Or you were in high school. I was in high school. Yeah. Not quite a senior yet. Yeah. You were... Did you, you, so we were looking up what was the Spice Girls were popular, big Spice Girl fan in the 90s. I mean, I was a little more John Michael Montgomery than uh, Spice yeah. Girls. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> All, right. All right. You're so you Kentucky. <laughs> oh, I was a sophomore in college. So I went down to school at UT in Austin. 
But probably that summer, I think that was one of the summers I still went home from the summer for the summer. Oh, okay. So, okay. I, so I was in Houston, um, where I grew up at that time period. And yeah, 96 summer, wasn't that the Olympics? The uh, um, Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, Atlanta. The Atlanta Olympics. Oh, that was, that, that was a big national headlines too. Yeah. Yep. And Carrie Scrugg. Yeah. I, I'm a big, I'm a big Olympian fan. Well, we're going to come back to Austin here in a little bit. So, Ooh, yeah. Okay. So, so as of right now, we're in Rowlett, which, as I said, is a small suburb. It's a suburb of both Eastern Dallas and Rockwall counties, and it's in an upscale-ish city on the banks of Lake Ray Hubbard. So, while the crime took place in small town Rowlett, Texas, it quickly grabbed national headlines because of the two victims, who they were, and who was believed to have killed them. Today, we're talking about Darlie Routier in the murder of her two boys, Damon and Devin, ages five and six. Okay, kid kid stories are always hard. Yeah, I know. We're going to do it again. You live this one. So, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm excited to hear your perspective okay. on it. All right. So the Routier family consisted of mom, Darley, father, Darren, and their children, Damon, Devin, and Drake. Wait, so everyone in this family has a D name? Yes. That's a little bit obnoxious. I know that kind of annoys you, doesn't it? It really does. <laughs> it's right up there with not knowing how to work Zoom after three years. <laughs> yeah, totally. All right. Well, and that would be so confusing, like calling for them when you're like in your angry mom voice. Yeah. Darren and Devin for sure sound right similar. Yeah, totally. And you would, and I go through kids' names, my nephew's name, when I'm calling the boys, when I'm upset with one of them, I yeah. just throw every name out there. So that'd be especially hard. Yeah. To write. I've been known to call the dog too. <laughs> I mean, like yes. just... Mm -hmm. any, any name I can think mm -hmm. of. Right. So together, Darley and her three sons lived at 5801 Eagle Drive in the upper class subdivision of Dalrock Heights. Dalrock Heights is on a peninsula-like body of land that juts into the lake. The home on Eagle Drive is a grand two-story colonial style home. Yeah. And if y'all remember, we've talked a lot about colonial style homes in the past. You know, they're noted for their like square or rectangular facades. Um, and they generally have a centrally placed front interest, symmetrical window placement, and really clean roof lines. Mm -hmm. I mean, just think very traditional style right. home. Yeah. 5801 Eagle Drive boasts three bedrooms, three bathrooms, three living areas, and two dining areas. The master bedroom features a fireplace and balcony overlooking the backyard. It was a gorgeous corner lot home that while idyllic on the outside, the exterior covered up the less than idyllic life inside. So it was here on the early morning of June 6, 1996, that Rowlett Police Dispatch received a call from a screaming Darley Routier. We're going to play a few segments of that call for you now. And of course, I will link or we will link it in the show notes in case you want to listen to the whole call later. I know medical emergency. Father, you're doing a lot of my children. You're doing a lot of my children. 
Within minutes, police arrived on scene and found an already deceased Devin, a dying Damon, a wounded Darley, and an unharmed Darren and baby Drake. Now, according to Rallap police officer David Waddell, the first responder on the scene, upon seeing all of the blood, he instructed Darley to lay towels across Damon and apply pressure. Officer Waddell would later note that Darley did not do this, but that she held a towel to her own wounded neck. Okay, stop. I'm sorry. Your kid is lying there wounded and you're not doing everything in your power. Mm-hmm. Like, okay. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just making sure I heard that you correctly. Heard that right. Right. Okay. So Officer Waddell, now joined by Sergeant Matthew Walling, quickly called for more backup and held off allowing paramedics into the home, fearing that the assailant was still in the house. Guns drawn, police follow a trail of blood that goes from the living area through the kitchen, utility room, and into the garage. There, they found a cut window screen, suggesting an entry point for the attacker. Finding no one in the garage, they searched the rest of the home. In the kitchen, Officer Waddell and Sergeant Walling noted blood spattered on the floor tile, a vacuum cleaner flipped over with blood spatter underneath it, and a bloody knife on the kitchen counter. Presumably, this is the same knife that Darley recounted picking up and putting on the counter during the 911 call. Oddly, just beside the knife lay a closed purse and a lot of expensive-looking jewelry. We'll post pictures online of the mound of gold that was just sitting there. So I went back and forth on this trying to decide if this is actually odd. I mean, I take off my jewelry and lay it all over the house all the time. Ultimately, I decided that the fact that it was in the kitchen, though, was odd because I would never take my jewelry off and just leave it lying in the kitchen because it could fall in the sink or the trash or anywhere to me. What do you all think about that? Um... Well, it will come as no surprise that I'm a little OCD. And so my jewelry only goes Mm. in one place. So it would be odd to me that you would leave it laying Mm. around. Um, But I also don't have like three children running around the house. So I I don't know. I could see if you're coming in, you set your purse down. It's been a long day. You just, do you think, like, I haven't seen this picture you're referring Mm -hmm. to, but could she have been wearing it all at one time? Like, Mm -mm. I don't think so. It was okay. Because... As I look down at my hands and I'm not wearing my wedding rings because they've been a little loose lately. And so I've been, I get annoyed and so I'll take them off a lot. And I have had them on the kitchen island, um, you know, in different places. So, but I am not so OCD, which probably would be a good thing so I can make sure I can find my rings all the time. But it'd be one thing if it was something that I just took off. Mm -hmm. It's another thing if it's just like my stash of jewelry. It It was a bunch. Weird. So then I'm excited for you all to see the picture then to get your yeah. take. It was, yeah. To me, it looked like a lot, but I also don't wear a lot of jewelry. And I liked your humble brag on how your rings are falling <laughs> off. <laughs> You're just withering away. You look great. <laughs> oh, yes, we caught that. <laughs> okay, so back to the home search. The officers proceeded upstairs and found a soundly sleeping Drake. Having determined that he had not been harmed, they give the all clear and allow the paramedics to enter the home. Side note, we will post a picture of the rendering of the home's floor plan online so that we c- you can better see the path the attacker and police walked because um, it is interesting. There's, there's a lot of pictures of the home online that I'm excited to post on the website and have people delve into. So, but you think, or they think the attacker came in through the garage mm-hmm. window mm-hmm. and then came into the living room, mm-hmm. but did not go upstairs. Correct. Okay. Correct. So both boys suffered a horrible death, Damon dying in the ambulance on the way to Baylor Medical Center, 
died the same way his brother Devin had died. Deep knife wounds in the chest, lungs punctured, straining for oxygen and gasping for air. Recounting the events of the evening to officers, Darley claims that she fell asleep on the downstairs living room sofa while watching TV with Devin and Damon. The boys created a pallet on the living room floor so they could sleep near their mother. Darren and Drake were asleep together in the upstairs master bedroom. She further claimed that she was awoken by an intruder climbing on top of her, a white male about six feet tall, dressed in all black, wearing a baseball cap. Darley claimed that when she woke, a struggle ensued and the man quickly retreated to the garage, dropping a knife along the route. She reported hearing nothing from the brutal attack of the boys. Let's pause here for a moment because that's a lot to digest, like the whole scene taking it in, the police entering, they walked the home, um, they didn't allow the paramedics in immediately, which is unfortunate because one of the babies were still breathing when they were allowed to come in. So it kind of makes you wonder, had they been allowed to come in immediately, which I understand how they weren't because they thought the assailant could still be in there. Could that have saved a little boy? Um, or if anyway. she had applied pressure as right. told. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, anytime you talk about a, a child's death, it's just tragic. Um, I'm also, I'm also so curious when people can describe other people's heights. Like, do you feel like you could do oh, no. that? There's if no way. Came in, no. Mm -mm. Yeah, you're right. There's no way. I, I could know. be like taller than me or shorter than me, maybe. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I would I would have an idea if it's be, um, below six feet or above six feet, but not necessarily when I'm being woken with somebody standing over me. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, not just standing over her, like on top of her. Yeah. yeah. No, not definitely not. Yeah. I, I might say he seemed tallish yeah. or like biggish or right. heavyish. Right. So while Darley is on the way to the hospital in an ambulance to treat her runes, her husband Darren is following closely behind being driven by a neighbor and baby Drake is with a neighbor being cared for. Police are still at the scene. Lots of them. Neighbors awoken by a steady stream of police cars and headlights are beginning to gather outside the home on Eagle Drive. The media and news stations are starting to gather too. Like we all live in a, in a big city. We live in Dallas and bad things here, they happen all the time. And while our neighborhoods are nice and quiet, it really is, isn't jarring for us to hear about something bad happening. Like I wake up on the new, you know, in the news and see something's going to happen. We live in a huge city, but at, and, but although not to this extent where two innocent little babies are murdered, but as, especially in the nineties in Rowlett, like that just didn't happen. That wasn't right. a thing. I mean, Rowlett would have been considered like a nice, quiet, right. affluent suburb. Exactly. Yeah, Absolutely. So back at the scene, officers had a gnawing suspicion that things weren't adding up and Officer Chris Frosch was sent to the hospital to get Darley's story again. They were trying to piece together any information that they could to make sense of what happened and to quell the awful theories they had swirling through their heads and in the pits of their stomachs. Darley's story on the exact details of what occurred that morning have varied. It's usually my assumption that changing stories equal lies. But when I take a step back and as a mother and try to put myself in these sh in those shoes, the changing stories don't necessarily scream lies to me. What what do y'all think about that? Well, I mean, I don't know. It's so hard to put yourself in the place mm -hmm. of like, trauma and how you would respond. But I think, yeah, I think changing stories are like trying to cover up yeah. sometimes. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think it's definitely suspicious. I do think when you're waking up in the middle of the mm -hmm, night, mm -hmm. I I think that you can have um, false memories. Mm -hmm. Like you think you remember what happened or you piece things together. I, I'm more suspicious if you're telling st like stories of something 
later on, like mm-hmm. it, uh, like a couple of days later. Oh, did where did I go mm. or what did I do? I feel like when this much trauma, it, I think that can be a bit explainable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, not to interrupt, but I just want to kind of uh, understand a little bit more about Darley. And yes, I think we're going to all be tripping over our words with all these D's in this story. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had to go back and think like, no, which one was the husband again? Right. I mean, I yeah. Um, but Tell, tell, tell me a little bit about Darlie. Is she older? Is mm-hmm. she uh, like a stay-at-home mom? Like, is there yeah, anything to kind of give yeah, me context? So, um, at the time of this occurrence, she was 26. Oh, yeah. Uh, already had three kids. Oh. Yeah. Oldest was six. Youngest, I think it was 18 months. I, I have it further down in the story. I can't remember. The baby Drake. Um, and her husband was 28. So they were young. Oh, they were young. Yeah. They were young parents. Well, I mean, I think that's another thing when you were asking about changing stories is mm-hmm. I think we're looking at this from our 40-something-year-old eyes and maturity about being a parent. But if we're talking about a young mom who had three kids before, mm-hmm. before at least I started having babies, um, and, you know, still having three of six and under, uh, yeah, I can... I, I, I can understand, you know, that this is not someone mature life experiences. I, I don't know. I, mm-hmm. I guess I'm um, able to be a little bit more sympathetic to maybe things being out mm-hmm. of order in her yeah. story. Yeah, I think it's a valid point. So at the hospital, she told investigators that it was Damon who woke her saying, mommy, mommy, and tugging on her nightgown. She states that when she opened her eyes, she felt a man climb off of her and that she chased him into the kitchen where she witnessed him open his hand and release the knife. She recounts that he then runs into the garage and and again expresses regret for having picked up the knife, saying that she probably covered his fingerprints with hers. Yeah, I'm just trying to, so like her son that Mm -hmm. was sleeping on the pallet on the floor wakes her up. Right. But presumably this man's already on top of her. Correct. When he wakes her up. Tugging her, saying, mommy, mommy. Okay. Yeah. They're vastly different stories. Okay. Yeah. So she also states that she looked over, saw her bleeding babies, and didn't realize that she had even been wounded until she saw herself in a mirror. She then screamed out for her husband, which that struck me as odd too. But to think about pausing, maybe to look at yourself in the mirror, that to me sounds odd. Yeah, unless you just like happen to walk by and glance. I mean, you can't not see, right? right? But yeah, I agree. You wouldn't go to a mirror. Yeah, I think it depends upon where the mirror is in your house. Right, true. I wanted to note here that the hospital staff stated that she seemed really wanting to drive home the point that she had mistakenly picked up the knife, telling anyone with an earshot, just the hospital staff, police, just anyone who would listen, they, in their opinion, she kept saying over and over, I shouldn't touch the knife. My fingerprints are on there now. So- for what it's worth. I wanted to note that. And also, according to Judy Kotner, who at the time had worked with many trauma patients, quote, the reaction of people who lose their children is a wide range of emotions. Mothers are always inconsolable. In my entire nursing experience, I have never seen a reaction like Darley's. Another hospital worker agreed, stating, quote, people react differently, but there is a commonality when someone sees someone they love die but I had never seen a reaction like Darlie's before. There were tissues by the bed, but she never took one. So let's fast forward a few days after the murders. Darlie is now out of the hospital and it is what would have been Devin's seventh birthday, June 14th. And Mel, were you in Dallas? You were not in Dallas by this time. No, You're still no. Awesome. Okay. I, that's right. A few more years. Okay, so this is the first time I remember hearing about this 
this particular story um, was, was is what I'm about to tell y'all. Footage of a smiling, gum-chewing, and happy Darley was splayed across the TVs. Balloons adorned the grave. Darley was spraying silly string and singing happy birthday. She is filmed and broadcast saying, quote, even though our hearts are breaking, I know that Damon and Devin would want us to be happy. Now, when I heard this, you know, when I was a junior in high school, I thought that's really messed up that she did that. But now I, seeing it through a mother's eyes now, I'm, and you know, y'all both know that my sister suffered a horrible loss recently. And I, I just know that we all cope with things differently. And I don't necessarily see that as a bad thing that I did when I was 16 years old. What do, what do y'all, what do y'all think? I'm, I'm with you. I mean, I, I, it makes me vomit and a little bit to even say this, but like if something happened to my son, I would think on his birthday, I would want to do something that I thought he would enjoy. Mm-hmm. And if we're talking only what, four or five days after she gets out of mm-hmm. the hospital, I mean, yeah, and I, I think it's in poor taste. I think somebody should have said like, let's do something a little more private, but. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I always, I don't know how I would react because mm-hmm. I think that um, sometimes I might seize up. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know how I would react. And I, I always worry a little bit when pe- uh, people judge mm-hmm. somebody in this position because you never know exactly how you would be in, unless you were in these shoes. Right. Um, now, you know, I do think that, that the nurses, um, you know, they probably have seen mm-hmm. tragedies, mm-hmm. but how often have even, you know, a small town nurse had seen right. small children in this situation. I, yeah. I hope not so right. often that they've become jaded to how, how a parent should react. Right. Yeah. It, but it was at Baylor though. Oh. So that's a, that's a, same, yeah, that's a right. big that's high a school. Big high school. Oh my gosh. It's a big hospital in Dallas. So yeah. They see now, a lot. Yeah. Now. Yeah. You're right there. So whatever we think, there are a bunch of people who are absolutely disgusted by this, including police and the Dallas County DA. And four days after Devin's graveside birthday party, Darley is arrested and charged with capital murder. Darley is taken to Lou Starrett Jail in downtown Dallas as she awaited and prepared for trial. Her attorney requested a venue change, citing the media circus that was quickly developing and possible tainting of the jury pool as the reason. The request was granted and the trial was to begin in early 1997 in Kerrville, Texas, a small suburb of Austin. It's a smaller town outside of Austin. Okay. So... When Darley and family learned that the prosecutor was seeking the death penalty, they dropped their court-appointed attorney, remortgaged the home on Eagle Drive, and hired noted attorney Doug Mulder. A jury consisting of seven women and five men were selected, and the trial was ready to begin. In the periphery of all that was surrounding Darley, Darren was struggling to keep up with the bills, and soon 5801 Eagle Drive was repossessed by the bank after six months of no payment. Thought this was very interesting and wily that the DA's office decided to focus the trial only on one son, Damon. This was done so that if the trial went awry and she did not receive the sentence they saw fit, they could try her for the death of Devin. That is interesting. Yeah, I think it's really smart. So the trial lasted almost a month with both sides trading barbs, ping-ponging back and forth about what had and hadn't occurred that early morning in June. Jury members were shown crime scene photos and provided testimony from an ambulance paramedic stating that she never once asked about her kids on the drive to the hospital. The route supposedly taken by the perpetrator was also called into question, and it was noted by a forensic science expert that it would have been nearly impossible for an intruder to not have left a trail of blood in and outside of the home. Blood expert Tom Bevel testified that of the blood found on Darley's nightgown, the velocity and direction certainly was splayed about in an act of upswinging motions, meaning 
stabbing, or slicing motions. When discussing the motive, a thief was ruled out because of the mound of jewelry found in the kitchen and a sexual assault was ruled out because someone coming in to commit such an act would have not killed the children first. They would have used the children as pawns to get what they wanted from the victim, which makes total sense and really sad that, I mean, just sad that somebody knows that. Yeah, that there's a like a method and madness to that that they know is a pattern. Right. Agreed. Further, it was noticed that the home's spot on the cul-de-sac and the high fence would have been a deterrent for anyone looking for a random victim. According to the prosecution, all of this means that Darlie Routier killed her children. For the defense's part, they paraded a string of neighbors, friends, and even the pastor who performed the funeral services across the witness stand. But it was Darren's testimony that made the most impact. On cross-examination, he admitted that the family suffered from financial stress, and that gave the jury something to mull. When much ado was made about Darley's, quote, superficial wounds, the defense called a medical expert who testified that while the cut was not deep, it came within millimeters of her carotid artery. He also surmised that the bruises and trauma to her body was not self-inflicted as was speculated. So hold on a second. Mm-hmm. Okay. So he's saying that, um, on one hand, he's saying that it almost like killed her. But on the other hand, he's saying that it was not self. Uh, yeah. So he was testifying for the defense. Correct. Yeah. Okay. That. I mean, I don't know. I don't know where my carotid artery is. I mean, I don't know. Maybe it was an accident that she didn't. Well, because my initial thought was, if she had done it, she was trying to kill herself, and oh. kind of was like slashing like her okay. neck. Okay. Gotcha. Uh, but you know, I'm, I'm kind of jumping ahead. But is the only reason that the, they were saying that she did this was because of potential financial? I mean, what, what, how was their marriage? I, I couldn't find anything online about their marriage except for the financial stress. Apparently, he was a small business owner and came into some money and they spent it willy nilly. And I think that's for that reason, they fell into financial difficulties. And so they're saying that. Because of that, there were, she was seeking some sort of, um, what is it, life insurance. But apparently they only had, between the two boys, $10,000 worth of life insurance. And Darren, the husband, had a lot more life insurance that was available. So then, you know, other people were thinking, well, why would she kill her boys when, you know, she huh. could have, for money? Yeah. No, it, it it doesn't seem like a strong case on the why. I mean, mm-hmm. I, we don't always need to know the why, but of course right. we want to know the why. And it, do, it doesn't seem the strongest case here mm-hmm. from that perspective. Um, and how was their marriage? Like they weren't getting divorced, no, I mean, like, not even though they like were that. sleeping apart. No, and I'll get into that a little bit okay. later. Remind me to come back to it if I don't, because I do have something to say about that. But no, they their marriage was fine. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So after mere hours of deliberation, the jury came back with a guilty verdict. And three days later, the judge handed down the sentence of death. There's much speculation online on Darlie's guilt or her innocence, and I really can't say either way. I'm, I'm really torn, um, but I think I'm partly torn because I just don't understand how a mother could do this to her children. Yeah, I mean, I think we're all there with you on that. I mean, the first thing that came to my mind here was like, is there any sort of postpartum or, you know, this woman's had three children in a relatively short amount of time. Mm-hmm. Her youngest is, what, 18 months old. It sounds like from what you were saying, like, they're not all sleeping real regularly if like one's upstairs mm-hmm. and two are on the pallet on the floor. Like mm-hmm. I could see how she was having some sort of mental health issues that mm-hmm. maybe in 96, is that right? 96, yeah. we're just not, you know, I mean, I think even now we struggle talking about, you know, postpartum mm-hmm. mental health. So right. 
That would be my initial reaction mm-hmm. is that there was something there. Right. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I'm struggling for the why. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I didn't put this in the, the you know, outline that I do, but I was struck by how, again, it was another instance when, because she took the stand too. It was, there was another instance where they tried to break her apart. Like she was a, you know, bleach blonde. She lived in a wealthy suburb of Dallas. She had recently come into money. She had a lot of jewelry. She, I think they had gotten, you know, a big job. And so they talked about that and whether or not she did this, like that just kind of makes me sick to my stomach too, to think about had she, if she didn't do this and she's being torn apart by what kind of life she lived prior to this happening. And we've yeah. seen that a few times. Yeah, absolutely. So it might be worth noting that to this day, Darlie still maintains her innocence and has continued to file appeals. And she's also working with the Innocence Project of Texas. Okay, so that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Innocence Project is really particular about the cases they take on. I mean, I would, I would be so curious. We may have to dig more into this, but... Like, what information do they have mm-hmm. that makes them think it's worth taking? Because they reject mm-hmm. so many right. cases. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you can just fall down the the rabbit hole online. Like, there's a ton of stuff on, on both sides. Every time I'd read one, I'd say, oh, well, she didn't do it. And then I read another <laughs> one. I'm like, oh, she did. I could never be a juror. I, I, there's, I, it would be a hung trial every time. <laughs> I, I can't make up my mind. Yeah. I mean, I, I tend to put a lot of faith in the Innocence Project and kind of think that they're doing a lot of their due diligence. And we've heard so many amazing stories of them helping people throughout the country. So um, it makes me want to go research a little bit more. Mm-hmm. But um, the fact that it hasn't, she has, not, has she, she's filed appeals, but has mm-hmm. she ever had a Another court case? No, but or a I saw, retrial, I guess is the right n- word. No, but um, as early as 2022, they were going to file some new DNA evidence. Uh, so there was some something obtained from a clothing garment that they were going to check. But but so far, from what I could tell, no other DNA is in the home. Like just the boys and hers on on the in the blood and the the knife is is just her fingerprints on the knife. Mm. Yeah, I mean. Somebody sounds like they had to know what they were doing to get into the house, to get into this mm-hmm. location. Yeah, that I mean, that all that is kind of suspect. Right. Yeah, and they also said that there was the supposed entry point and exit point in the, uh, the because of the screen in the garage that was cut. Um, and I, also, I saw somewhere that there's still a thick layer of dust on that um, garage. And so that kind of, that made the investigators think, well, no one climbed in and out of this window because... There's that dust. It reminded me of John Bonet. A lot of things. Yeah, all yeah. Went back there's, to there's several yeah. things in this that make you think about John Bonet. Right. Well, and I wonder. I mean, I'm not forensic um, savvy enough to know, but like, I know if you break a window, you can tell if it's broken from the outside oh, or right. inside. Mm-hmm. I wonder if the same is true from like a cut. Surely, if, so. and I would think so, right? If you're thinking about the slice pattern, I think so. Of a knife, you yeah. should be able to tell if that happened from inside the house I or outside think. the house. Yeah, because it's so tight too on a screen. Mm-hmm. You would think. I would think so. Yeah, I don't know. Um, so no date has been set for her execution. And uh, going back to what you were asking about their marriage, he still thinks she didn't do it. Like, he's like, there's no way she did this. They stayed married for a while while she was on death row. They got ended up getting divorced. It just was like a mutual decision for them to just divorce, which makes which makes sense. Um, so yeah, he still maintains that they, they were in a loving marriage, but it seems like. And I guess he kept custody of the youngest son. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I generally, another again, I feel 
sympathetic to the fact that he believes she's innocent. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, he would know more than any of us would know the ins and outs and the research and what's been going on. So, right. Mm. Yeah. I saw um, another quote from Officer Waddell that I didn't put in the outline because I, I didn't, I like to try to cite it from at least two or three sources. Um, but one had a quote from him saying that when Darlie was in the ambulance on the way to the hospital and um, Darren was still there waiting for a ride to the hospital, he told um, Officer Waddell, well, this, well, golly, this is the biggest thing that's ever happened in Rowlett. And that struck the officer as odd. And it also strikes me as odd because I'm thinking, how did, you, how did no one hear anything? That's what I understand. Um, yeah. I'm not, I'm not proposing that he had anything to do with it, but, but m- maybe, I don't know. That's just, that's just weird. It's a weird thing to think about when your two boys have just died in your yeah. house and I mean, yeah. once again, I'm trying to be sympathetic to people. Yeah, you never know no. how they are, but that is a weird statement. Yeah. I mentioned that it was foreclosed on in 1996 while the Routier still owned it and Darley awaited trial. From 97 to 2006, there were three owners. The buyer in 2005 purchased the home for $183,000. The buyer sold the home to Open Door in June 2022 for an undisclosed amount. Okay, don't well, get me started on well, Open Door. I, well, that, I, I was going to interrupt because tell me about Open Door. I well, really don't know I, what it that is. Struck out to me too because they didn't. To me, they don't want to put it on the market. They don't. They just want to get rid of it and unload it and not deal with it from for themselves, having to disclose everything. Yeah, that might that might be true. I mean, for those of y'all not like immersed in the real estate markets like Elena and our our, um, open door is a company that will buy your house and then turn around and sell it. But most of the time, you know, what I have seen from experience, I'm sure this is not their business model and what they put online, but the homes are usually distressed in Mm -hmm. some way, not well maintained. You can usually just like get a code and go in. So a lot of times, I don't know, it's just... I've never showed one of those houses where my clients are like, oh, yeah, this is same. a great house. Yes, yeah, same, same. Yeah. There's usually something problematic about it. They just yeah. kind of slap lipstick on it and don't, they don't really, sorry, yeah. sorry open door. But, you, but you're right that maybe it was just from a disclosure standpoint, mm-hmm. like, hey, this is your problem. Yeah, seriously. You're selling it to you and you right. deal with it. Right. Okay. So yeah, that's our thoughts on open door. And to, to further that point, they bought it in June of 2022 and put it back on the market August of 2022. So they didn't do a lot to that house. Um, and it hit at that time in August of 2022 with a price tag of $419,000. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I, I've been frantically Googling and I noticed that our friend of the podcast, Candy's Dirt, which is a great local Dallas um, website, blog, everything related to interesting uh, um, real estate news in North Texas. They had a, an interesting article on them last year. And what I was thinking was kind of interesting was that they actually talked about the disclosures. And we've talked a lot on the on this podcast about how different states have different rules and laws as to what has to be disclosed when there's been a crime uh, at a location. But what it says here is that Texas laws do requ- um, require sellers to disclose when they're aware that an unnatural death had taken place on the property. And so that 2022 disclosure from Open Door actually marked it with yes, when there was a question, any death on the property um, except for death caused by natural causes, suicide or accident. And they said, yes. Um, But, you know, what's kind of funny and and 
interesting is later on it goes on to say um, details unknown, which you know we're laughing because eh. in 2022 you're you're buying a new house, you're googling it, right. you want to know yeah. everything about it, your neighbors, etc. And I don't think it would have taken much work at all for somebody to get those details. Yeah. Um, but you know, it, later on it kind of goes on to say you know it shows that they pulled up the 2006 MLS or so previous MLS and. Um, in that disclosure, it simply said, contact listing agent for disclosures prior to offers. Yeah. And that's, those are bad. Those are both no-nos. Like you should, they knew what happened in there. They need to disclose it on there. And someone could probably get in trouble for that. But yeah, I mean, it's it's not a full disclosure in my opinion. It's a, no. it's a check the that's box. A, right. Yeah. CYA probably. Right. But yeah. I don't even think that is CYA. Like I think you just well, disclose what you know. And don't ask yeah. me as a listening. I don't want to tell them. Yeah. You're like, can you Google the address and <laughs> just put that? Just Google. <laughs> Google it. Um, it's like so, when you ask for directions and people are right. like, use MapQuest. Oh, yes. Yes. Thank you. MapQuest. Well, did I just what? date myself? Yeah, what wow. 1996? <laughs> I mean, yes. At one point in time, we said MapQuest. Yeah. But hey, no. listen, y'all have not read the directions that a lot of these realtors put in MLS. You think I'm joking about I haven't MapQuest. seen MapQuest, though. <laughs> I see GPS. All right, we'll go with GPS. <laughs> so the the house sat on the market for 163 days before ultimately selling for $397,000. So a fall, far cry from what they asked That's for. interesting because August of 2022 was, was a pretty that. hot market. Yeah, I was about to say that too. Yeah. So listen to this. In Texas, attached items convey or sell with a home and the curtain rods would normally convey the curtains and the curtain rods with a home. And these did. Each time the home sold, it sold with the curtains that were there the night of the murders. That totally creeps me out. No one thought to take those curtains down. That totally creeps me out. Yeah. Well, and didn't you say you did some research and they were like really expensive curtains? Oh, $12,000 curtains. Yeah. That was yeah. brought up in the trial too. Like she's spending $12,000 on curtains. That is a hell of a lot of money on curtains in, in 1996. 1996. Yeah. And it's a hell of a lot of money on curtains now. And they're ugly. Well, they were probably like 1996 glory. <laughs> total. They're maroon and they had all the frilly drapery up top and yeah, yeah it's not pretty. I can see it. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's crazy though that somebody would still want those. Seriously. Yeah. I had to sell my draperies with the house once and I was really bitter about it because oh. they were custom. Uh, and I mean, they were custom for me, like they had pretty little trim, but they would have worked at any window. And I was like, I really want them. So I excluded them from the sale. Yeah. And then somebody was like, yeah, we'll buy it. And, but we want your curtains. I was like, damn it. Oh, they wouldn't cool. have worked here anyway. Yeah. But yeah. I was still bitter about it. Yeah. No, I get that. I get that. So buy it, live there, sell it. I mean, I'd list it, but mm -hmm. I wouldn't live there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would list Both it. Both because it's a little far out for me mm -hmm. and because of a child death on the property. Right. Definitely the child death for me. I would list it, but you would disclose exactly what happened on oh, the disclosure. Course. Melanie? Yeah. Uh, children deaths. That, that's a really hard, hard one. For you. That's yeah. a really hard one for me. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I, I mean... I'm not a realist, realtor, but I would never turn down money. So yeah, I would work for your money. Uh, but from a perspective of living there, a child death is a hard. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. I, I looked up the picture of the house because, you know, when is I opt to do it? And you, to me, it looks exactly like, um, like a smaller version of the Home Alone house. Mm -hmm. So when yeah. you were describing kind of the colonial house and I pulled up a picture of the Home Alone house and a picture of this house, maybe this one's not as big or innate nor in a Chicago suburb, but it, it it's that same kind of style. That colonial style? 
Yeah. Well, you know, uh, faux colonial. I mean, yeah. I, we are talking about a home that was built. Um, you know, well, still that style. Yeah, I think it was in 1990. Yeah. Yes. It's kind of like in one of our last shows where we talked about it in the antebellum house. It was sort of um, antebellum style. So there were additional items that were found at the scene that are currently undergoing additional DNA testing. So we'll, it'll be interesting to see how that pans out. Yeah. I mean, I feel like we're going to have to go down the rabbit hole of the Innocence Project on this. Yeah. I'm really fascinated. That would be fun to do one that was someone who's exonerated Yeah, by that. Yeah. Well, Elena, this was a really interesting story. And I feel like Darlie Routier is one of those names that I hear that I'm supposed to know who they are mm-hmm. and I don't. So I feel like you... You, you filled us in? Oh, you're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> Mel's over here still reading. She's like, I, I she am can't fascinated. Stop. And it looks like there's lots of forensic files and interviews and jailhouse interviews. So, yeah, there's a it, bunch of if this information online. Teases your interest, then you can uh, start researching and letting us know your thoughts. Did she do it? Did she not? Did she get a fair trial? Who knows? Yeah. My sister has gone through the street before she um, had business to take care of out there. And she said it's eerie. I wanted to go by before we started recording and I didn't have a chance. But she's like, it's just eerie on that street. Oh, really? Like it just feels weird. Yeah. Well, I think your family has a lot of sixth sense. Yeah. I think so too. Yeah, I do too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I hope if you all enjoyed this podcast um, that you will leave us a review, share it with your friends. More importantly, we would we would love that. If so. you don't like it, don't say anything. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> don't say a word. Don't, keep it to just yourself. Keep it to yourself. <laughs> don't share it with your friends. Um, but if you do love it, yeah, pass it along. Thanks. Thanks. Hey, y'all. Thanks for listening and being a part of our Crime Estate family. If you're curious about today's featured crime estate, you can find additional photos and details from today's episode online at crimeestate.com or on Facebook and Instagram by following at Crime Estate Podcast. Have a crime estate we should cover? Let us know. Shoot us an email at crimeestatepodcast at gmail.com. Until next week.